You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. The Second Vatican Council was one of the most important events in the 20th century for the Catholic Church. It was announced by Blessed Pope John XXIII in 1959, much to, to the surprise of the whole world. It brought together the 2,500 Catholic bishops of that day. Today, there are more than 4,000 Catholic bishops around the world, but in that day, all of those bishops came together in Rome at St. Peter's to meet and deliberate about the affairs of the Catholic Church. A lot of people then and some since have wondered why did Pope John XXIII call the council in the first place? Why was there a council? There was no particular crisis in the Catholic Church at that time. The Catholic Church seemed to be sound and flourishing and very stable with a uh, large number of believers who practiced. And there was no reason that most people could see for a council. In the past, councils, ecumenical councils of the church had been called for some kind of a crisis situation. And nobody could see that there was a particular crisis in the Catholic Church. So the question is, why did John XXIII call it? Well, before we answer that, maybe we should briefly talk about what is an ecumenical council of the church. The council is a meeting of the bishops of the Catholic Church worldwide who meet under the sponsorship of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, to decide and deliberate about questions pertaining to the Catholic Church. Councils are supposed to not only decide and deliberate, but to settle serious questions. When we look at history and we see the first council of the Catholic Church, this was the famous Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. This council was actually called by the Roman Emperor Constantine. And the reason was that uh, Constantine saw the turmoil that had been caused within the, uh, the growing church of that day because of the ideas of an Egyptian priest whose name was Arius, who denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. And the, this, was, this was the Arian heresy. Uh, a lot of people picked up on that, but this was not the teaching of the church. There was a, a turmoil and unrest because of this. And so it was the Emperor Constantine in that day who called the council. Now, you should know that the Bishop of Rome, Pope Sylvester I, who was an old man at that time, did not go to Nicaea, a city in Asia Minor near Constantinople, where the council met. He sent two legates or representatives to represent him, and he ratified the decisions of the Council of Nicaea after the fact. But it was at the Council of Nicaea that the bishops decided, uh, considered and decided this whole question raised by Arius, was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a divine person? Arius had denied that. 
the bishops deliberated about this, debated it, and decided that Jesus Christ, as the Gospels in various places do say, was indeed a divine person. The Son of God was part of a trinity of persons in the Godhead. And the council not only decided and settled this question, the council issued the so-called Nicene Creed, which is something that Catholics to this day profess and recite at Sunday Mass and on Holy Days of Obligation. It's virtually the same creed that was issued by that Council of Nicaea. So the, the church began with this idea of having the bishops come together to decide these important questions. Since Nicaea in 325 AD, there have been 20 additional councils before Vatican II, the most recent council was the first Vatican Council, which was also held in Rome in 1870. The authentic official doctrinal decisions of an ecumenical council ratified by the Pope are believed by the Catholic Church to enjoy the guarantee of the Holy Spirit as to the truth of what is taught. Uh, this belief that the Holy Spirit guides councils of the church goes back to the primitive, so-called primitive council of Jerusalem, which is described in chapter 15 of the New Testament book of Acts. In that book of Acts, you will find that the Peter and the other apostles got together. They decided whether the dietary laws of Judaism Peter and all the apostles, as was Jesus himself, were, of course, all Jews operating under the law of Moses. And the question for the early church was, do Christians have to observe those Jewish dietary laws set forth in the Old Testament? This so-called primitive council of Jerusalem decided, as most people know, no, Christians do not have to follow those dietary laws. And at the time that this decision was made, Peter remarked in sending out the message to the Christian believers that he said, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, namely the apostles of Jesus, to lay no greater burden upon you. So here at the very beginning of the church, Peter and the apostles made this decision on behalf of the church and they claimed the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that what they decided as leaders of the church was indeed guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I should mention that this primitive so-called Council of Jerusalem, though this is part of the history of the church, is not one of the 21 um, general ecumenical or general councils of the church that down through the last um, 2,000 years, approximately one council each century have been held. So Vatican II came in the tradition of the church and very much followed what previous councils had done in deciding about the church. <clears throat> Why John XXIII decided to call a council, however, was still something that in the minds of many people was a question. Why did... <clears throat> Why did we need to have a why did we need to have a, a council at all? 
Well, John XXIII, who had been a Vatican diplomat serving in Bulgaria and Turkey and other places, was very conscious <clears throat> of the situation of the church in the years prior to, or particularly during the Second World War, but then in the years prior to Vatican II. And John XXIII, among other things, had lived among the Eastern Orthodox in Turkey and Bulgaria and had decided that it was a scandal that Christians were not united, that the Catholic Church was separated from the communion of the Eastern Orthodox. The belief of these communions is virtually the same, and John XXIII felt we must have, we must move forward. We're in a rut, so to speak, even though the church is uh, uh, sound and sane at this point in time, still we must move forward because Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, had, uh, com uh, had uh, commanded his followers, of which um, the Pope and the Catholic bishops claimed to be the successors of Peter and the apostles, Jesus had commanded his followers to go out to all the world and tell the good news, preach the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what John XXIII wanted to do was precisely that, to get the church reactivated, re-energized in going out to all the world to preach the good news and to bring people to Christ. In his what became his famous opening address to the council, as well as in some other documents, Pope John XXIII gave three reasons why <clears throat> he called the council. The first reason was, as he put it, and I'll quote his actual words in this case, the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. In other words, Catholic truth, Catholic teaching should be adjusted or reformulated in order to make it more um, compelling or persuasive to the modern world. This was John's first reason for calling the council. He wanted what he considered to be the truths of the Catholic religion better stated, better formulated, so as to be persuasive to the world at large. That was his first reason for the council. The second reason was, went back to his experience as a papal diplomat uh, in Turkey and Bulgaria. He looked out there and he saw many, many Christians, millions in fact, who believed in Christ, believed that Jesus was the Son of God, yet were not in communion with the Catholic Church. And he con John considered that a major scandal. And so his second reason for calling the council was to equip the church to deal more effectively with fellow Christian believers in the world and perhaps achieve a reunion of Christians, which had been over, over the course of history. Many, <clears throat> there were many... Um, uh, uh, breaks and splits in, in Christianity, and John wanted them to bring, all, to bring back all this together in what we today speak of as ecumenism. The third reason that John XXIII wanted for calling the council was to bring the church up to date in order to better uh, preach that gospel to all the world 
and reach out to those fellow Christians not in communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, and he used a, an Italian word, aggiornamento, to describe this. Uh, aggiornamento means bringing up to date. John wanted to bring the church up to date so that the church would be better equipped to um, preach that gospel and to set forth those uh, truths of the faith which he considered um, uh, so important. In the years after the council, after um, John had died and Paul VI had become Pope, Paul VI summed up the objectives of the council in this single one, which I will quote, to make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted for proclaiming the gospel to the people of the 20th century. This then was the purpose of the council. It did not uh, address or face a major crisis as many of the past councils of the church had faced, but it was intended to equip the church to better preach the gospel and better to set forth uh, the, the teaching and the truths of the church. Now, the question of whether the aims and purposes were actually carried out by the council is a separate question from whether these concerns of Pope John XXIII were legitimate in the first place. Uh, we have to say that they were legitimate, that they did uh, represent things which the church needed to do and which John felt the church needed to do. And all of these decisions of the council um, were set forth in the, what the council issued namely the 16 official documents that the uh, Second Vatican Council issued. These are really the legacy of the Council. The documents, what's written is more permanent. What is just spoken can be evanescent and can disappear rapidly and be forgotten. But what's written down in the official documents of the Church is something that endures. And to this day, the 16 documents of the Vatican Council II are the rules, the codification, the marching orders of the Pope and the bishops of the church today. They go back frequently to those, those documents as to the, what they should be doing, where they should be going. So that's the importance of the 16 documents. And in this course, we're going to be uh, dealing primarily with those documents, those permanent record of the, um, of the Council. Now, I would like to say a word, too, because many people know that not everything after Vatican II made these decisions turned out to be completely successful. Councils issue both doctrinal and administrative, or what we call in the Church pastoral, uh, decisions, and some of these pastoral decisions can be uh, correct, but not work out very well in practice. At this, at, on the other hand, it should be stated that the Church's belief that the Holy Spirit guarantees the results of an ecumenical council applies only to the doctrines of the Church, the teaching of the Church. The administrative decisions are made, they're made legitimately, but they can be mistaken and they can be changed as a result if they don't work out. 
by a future, by a subsequent pope or by a subsequent council. So remember this distinction between the doctrinal and the pastoral aspects of a council. The doctrinal aspects, what the church teaches as true, this is believed by the church to be guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. What is pastoral or merely practical or administrative, obviously the bishops of the church and the pope as well try to make the best decisions they can, but if things don't work out, then it may be that changes will have to be made down the road in some of the practical decisions that, we, that are made. And I think just about everybody knows that following Vatican Council II, there was a good deal of um, uncertainty, unrest, and even confusion about what the council had decided and what, um, what needed to be done. We cannot think that the fathers of Vatican Council II, that is the bishops of the day, had any inkling of what, is, um, what was going to become of, their, um, of the decisions that they made. Now, one of the things that has to be said, if you remember back when the, um, when the council was held, it was the years 1962 to 1965. The bishops each year in September went to Rome and for September, October, November, and into December of each of those four years between 1962 and 1965, the bishops deliberated about all of these questions and ended up uh, approving and issuing their 16 documents uh, to be ratified by the Pope. And at that time, there was a great deal of optimism. And in some ways, we have to uh, realistically realize that perhaps the fathers of Vatican II were too optimistic about what the prospects were for the church and for the outcomes and for the success of some of the things that they were debating and deciding. But nevertheless, they were very sincere at the time and they really did not have any idea of the kind of confusion that was going to follow in um, uh, following the council. We can remember, however, that it was the famous revolutionary 1960s that were going to come not only upon the church, but upon our society as a whole. A lot of people, there was a lot of people now, particularly in America, we had the civil rights revolution. That was going on exactly at the same time that uh, the council was going on. Uh, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech while the council uh, was active and uh, uh, sitting in Rome. The, the anti-Vietnam War movement came in. All these um, demonstrations and uh, unrest that went on, and some people in the church looking at what was happening in secular society discovered or thought they discovered that, well, we can speak truth to power, they thought, and we can through uh, agitation and... Um, demonstrations and so on, we can make changes. Well, some of that actually did work in uh, secular society, and there were those in the church who thought, well, we will do it the same way. We will treat the bishops of the church as uh, 
men of power and we will uh, move in and we will demonstrate and agitate and put on pressures to have things be the way we want them to be. As a result of this kind of a revolutionary situation in society, uh, some of this got into the church itself and there was indeed a great deal of, of confusion uh, about the church and about the council at that time. But we really cannot think that this invalidated the decisions that the bishops made <clears throat> as part of the council. Uh, some people think, well, before Vatican II changed everything, everything was fine with the church, but one has to realize that if everything was so fine, then why did it uh, decline or collapse so quickly uh, when the revolutionary 1960s started? So what then did Vatican II accomplish? The council issued 16 documents. In the second um, lecture, we will go through those documents and discuss what they are and what they're all about. Um, and they are very important. As I said at the beginning, the church to this day still relies on consular decisions for the decisions that the popes and the bishops make every day. In fact, all of the popes elected since Vatican II, this is a very interesting um, uh, uh, thing to, to comment on, all of the popes, upon their election, as their first order of business, first order of business, all of the popes, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, all of the popes elected after Vatican II announced as their first order of bishops, uh, uh, business that they would implement the, the documents of Vatican II. Pope Benedict, when he was elected in 2005, said the council documents have lost none of their timeliness, and he said what we need to do is reread those documents. So here, here is a point about the importance of the council documents as the popes themselves see it. Benedict XVI thought they, were, they had lost none of their timeliness and were very, um, very much current today, even after 40 years. Now, in our next lecture, we will attempt to describe a little bit about why that is so, but um, I would like to mention another thing, which is the fact that uh, General Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, once told the very well-known theologian, French theologian at the council, Father Yves Congar, General de Gaulle told him the Second Vatican Council was the most important event in the 20th century. Now, that's not the most important church event, the most important ecclesiastical event. That's the most important event in the 20th century period coming from none other than President of France, Charles de Gaulle. How could that be so? If we consider what the Catholic Church is, namely the extension of Jesus Christ in history as the Church believes, the oldest existing institution in the world, the most widespread existing institution in the world, the most numerous institution in the world, if we believe, with, as the church herself believes, that 
the salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ is in a sometimes mysterious but nevertheless real way tied up with this institution which he founded when he told Peter and the apostles that he was founding a church upon the rock. If we believe this, then we can see that this church's desire and plan to renew herself truly was one of the most important events in the 20th century. If the Catholic Church, which has come down all through these centuries, has um, endured all of these many things and still goes on and today is uh, growing by leaps and bounds in Africa and Asia, for example, if the Catholic Church is anything at all that what she claims to be, then this meeting of her worldwide leaders in Rome over four years to deliberate about all these serious subjects has to be considered to be a very important event indeed. And although uh, General de Gaulle's uh, judgment may seem a bit startling when we first hear it, if we think about it, we can see that yes, uh, this was a very, very important event in the church's um, uh, history and in the world's history. So um, we have to look at the council then not as just a, a lot of um, changes here or there, the changes in the liturgy, for in instance, the movement of the mass from Latin to English, uh, as people talk about today, uh, the priest now faces the people uh, instead of the altar, you know, things like this. These are superficial changes and they do not get to the heart and the substance of what the council was really all about. What the council was really all about is contained in those 16 documents that it issued on a variety of subjects. And in our next lecture, we're going to look at those documents. Some are less important than others. We won't look at any of them in any great detail because the uh, time for a lecture is, gives us only the brief time to go over the major subjects that they're covered. Nevertheless, these 16 documents are very important, just as all the popes have said upon their election and have then proceeded in their, uh, in their pontificates to carry them out. John Paul II tirelessly quoted the council all the time. He was constantly saying the council this and the council that and the council the other. So we have to recognize this kind of importance and recognize that the legacy of the council and what comes down to us is indeed contained in what the council officially did, what the bishops voted on, and I should say that these, this was, uh, these documents were not, uh, not, there were many vigorous debates, but all of the documents, all without exception of the Second Vatican Council, were approved by huge majorities of the bishops, and this was considered, for instance, by Pope Paul VI to be one of the um, reasons why the council can claim the guarantee of the Holy Spirit for its results, the idea is that the Holy Spirit would have moved those fathers, all of them Catholic bishops, all of them responsible in their own diocese uh, for, for the life and sacraments of the church. So this is what we want to look at in the next um, session. 
why it is, what, what did the documents say, what do they contain. Uh, it should be mentioned that, uh, as I said earlier, all of these council documents must be ratified by the Pope in order to be valid. And um, the Pope remains as the um, First Vatican Council uh, decided on his position. The Pope remains as the earthly head of the Church of Christ, but in Vatican II, with Vatican II, he worked with those 2,500 bishops of the church, and they went through all of this in some detail, methodically, decided on many important issues which are part of the life of the church today. So although most people today, the majority of people in the world were born after this council sat, the fact that 40 years ago, from the year 2005, the council met and deliberated and decided all these things still remains very, very important in the life and faith of the Catholic Church. And there's not one single believing Catholic today that is not affected and sometimes considerably affected by what was done and decided at that time. So in our next lecture, we shall look at these 16 documents tell what they contain and what, they, uh, what significance in some cases they have for us today. But in the meantime, we can, I think, really endorse what Charles de Gaulle said, that certainly this was one of the most important events in the whole 20th century, the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church. The Second Vatican Council was one of the most important events of the 20th century, and the 16 documents issued by the Second Vatican Council to this day, more than 40 years later, are the uh, underpinning of the whole way that the church uh, operates today and goes forward. Um, in this second lecture on the documents of Vatican II, I want to very quickly run through these 16 documents. Some are more important than others, and obviously some are very important indeed, and others perhaps less important. All of them, however, uh, are form a part which when you study the Council, you see how it all fits together um, in really quite a, uh, an intelligible way that those of us who have studied the Council um, are well aware of. What is spoken, as I said, can pass quickly, can be evanescent. What is written down and recorded can be the enduring legacy of the Council, as is in fact the case. The very first document that the Council issued was the document that brought about the reform of the sacred liturgy in the Church and this is the document that, as a practical matter, has probably affected uh, most Catholics in the pews more than any other. People today superficially speak of, oh, well, they moved from Latin to English, and the priest now faces the um, uh, people instead of the altar, and so on. This was not what the liturgical reform was all about. The liturgical reform, as the document called Sacrosanctum 
concilium, that is sacred council, uh, the constitution on the uh, reform of the sacred liturgy, this document wanted to bring about what it called full, active, and conscious participation by the Catholic faithful uh, in the sacred liturgy, principally the Mass, but not only the Mass. And uh, this was the aim and intention of the Council. And the, the document itself uh, was the first to be um, issued by the Council. It began to be implemented before the Council itself was over, it was not the case, by the way, that Vatican II decreed the change from Latin to English in the Mass and Sacraments. Vatican II actually said Latin should be retained, but it said that we could go to the vernacular Mass, and after the Council, within a couple of years after the Council, most of the bishops' conferences of the world decided they did want to go to the vernacular. This had to be approved by the Holy See, and in most cases it was automatically approved by the Holy See. So the change from Latin to English is not the major thing that the Council did, but it's the thing that perhaps many people uh, have experienced and, and see the difference between the pre-Vatican II Church and the post-Vatican II Church. In many other ways, the reform of the liturgy was not always carried out as the council itself had said it should be carried out, that is carefully and with respect for the traditions of the church. But be that as it may, the thing that we need to say about this document is that, yes, the council did decree a reform of the liturgy. A reform of the liturgy was carried out. Uh, today, in most places and in most respects, this, has, this situation is stabilized so that we do now today have a Mass which is not too different from what the bishops of the uh, Vatican Council decided at the time, <clears throat> but because of some of the abuses and other um, uh, misapplications of the reform, certain people have not uh, uh, gone along with it, and as a result of that, just recently in... Um, uh, 2007, Pope Benedict XVI has actually allowed a wider use of the pre-Vatican II Mass, uh, popularly called the Tridentine Mass, for those members of the Church who uh, did not completely accept the liturgical reform. And uh, I think Pope Benedict's aim is to be sure that all of these people are reconciled to the Church. The one single schism that has followed from Vatican II, namely the schism of uh, French Archbishop um, um, Marcel Lefebvre and his followers, uh, who at the, uh, before his death he, he ordained several bishops illicitly and was excommunicated along with the uh, bishops ordained illicitly. So this is the one schism that has come. And I think Pope Benedict's aim today is to try to get um, to reconcile some of these people who feel that the church has gone in the wrong direction, uh, particularly on the liturgy, to reconcile them to the church, which did, in fact, uh, call for a, a reform of the liturgy, and such a reform was carried out. The second document issued by the council was a very brief one, and we won't spend a lot of time on it. It was called Intermorifica, and it was a decree on what the church calls 
the means of social communication. This is a Vatican term for what we call the media. Now, how they ever came to means of social communication, I believe may and perhaps must be a translation back from the Latin, whatever they say in Latin to describe the modern media has come back as a translation uh, into English and the church calls it the, the, the means of social communication. That's the media. This document is perhaps the most neglected document of all the Vatican II documents. And <clears throat> it has unfortunately not been well received by practically anybody, but it's hard to understand why uh, the hostility to the document is there because what the document essentially says is that the media should be devoted to truth and the media should work within the moral order. Now, how anyone can object to that is one of the facts of, uh, of our particular culture. The most important document issued by the Second Vatican Council is the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, as it's called, the light of the nations. Now, the light of the nations is not the church itself. The light of the nations is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the uh, church uh, in Lumen Gentium refers back to the body that Jesus Christ founded in order to extend his work and his uh, word in the world. And the um, Lumen Gentium is the greatest description that the Catholic Church has ever made of herself, what she is and what she does, in her entire 2,000-year history. This is a wonderful document. It is a, uh, a, 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 it is a, a lesson uh, in the faith itself, a complete lesson. It um, does not change the church from what was understood to be the hierarchical, sacerdotal, sacramental church that we well know. Contrary to what most people believe, Vatican II changed none of that. Vatican II affirmed it, sometimes in the very words of the first Vatican Council, which had established the position of the Pope, uh, who, who enjoys primacy over the whole world, and in doctrines, in certain uh, uh, Catholic teachings or doctrines, enjoys uh, what we call infallibility or freedom from error guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. All of this is re reaffirmed in Lumen Gentium, but Lumen Gentium does, does talk about the people of God. And the people of God is not what many people have made it seem to be. Uh, it's not everybody, all the laity in the church, for instance, as against the bishops. No, the people of God includes the bishops and the pope and the religious and the priests. We're all part of the people of God. It is a holy people that what Vatican II's Lumen Gentium says should be called to holiness. This is one of the major, uh, major ideas in this particular document, Lumen Gentium, the universal call to holiness. The call to holiness is not just a matter for the priests or the religious uh, dedicated to the religious life. It's for everybody. The laity, too, should be actively carrying, uh, 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 practicing and carrying out their faith in an active way and uh, setting forth that faith to the world as Jesus commanded when he told us to uh, preach the gospel to all nations. What Lumen Gentium wants us to do 
is to, for the whole church to get involved in that. And that's what the um, Lumen Gentium is about. One of the other major things of this um, document, which is important, is the way in which the document brings out what the council called the collegiality of the Catholic bishops. In other words, yes, the Pope is at the head of the church, but the Pope is not alone, which is kind of the idea that some people got uh, coming out of Vatican I. And what Vatican II wanted was that all the Catholic bishops of the world share in their respective dioceses in the leadership of the church, of which the Pope, of course, remains the head. But the bishops are to be drawn in much more uh, actively uh, according to the doctrine of collegiality that this document um, uh, uh, established. Now, as I say, this is the most important of all the Vatican II documents. Every Catholic should be acquainted with this doctrine, should read it. Uh, many of the other doctrines that came out should, um, uh, many of the other doc, uh, um, doctrines that, that uh, documents that the Council issued are based on Lumen Gentium. They derive from it, and in many cases, there is a, um, uh, the, the, the Vatican II documents can be divided up into those concerned with the affairs of the church, uh, Latin, uh, ad intra, and those concerned with the church's relation to the world, ad extra. Uh, this was a um, doctrine which, um, or this was a plan for the council which was put together by the future Pope Paul VI when he was still Cardinal Montini and by the Belgian Cardinal uh, Leo Joseph Sunens put together this plan for the council and after the death of John XXIII, the council pretty much went forward this way. And Lumen Gentium is primarily an ad intra document concerning the life of the church itself. As I said, it is the, uh, the best and the most complete description that the church has ever made of herself in her entire history. Another shorter document follows upon Lumen Gentium, uh, a document on the uh, Eastern Catholic churches. The Catholic church is not just the Roman rite. In terms of numbers around the world, it's by far the largest, but there are uh, uh, more than a dozen Eastern Catholic churches, some of them going back to apostolic times who are in full communion with the Bishop of Rome, but who have a separate rite or liturgy that they practice in their particular communities. Uh, uh, the, these are Eastern churches such as the Maronites of Lebanon, the Chaldeans of Iraq, and so on. These are ancient churches. They are part of the Catholic Church. And Vatican II issued a document on the um, Oriental churches uh, st uh, stabilizing and uh, uh, regularizing their situation. Now, one of the other important documents of the Catholic Church is a document which has the very, very uh, uh, hard to pronounce Latin title of Re Tinde Gratio uh, 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 Concilaris, which means, uh, which is simply the document, uh, excuse me, Unitatis Re Tinde Gratio, which is the Church's decree on ecumenism. What is ecumenism? Ecumenism is the relations between the various Christian churches. One of John XXIII's purposes in calling the council was to uh, seek Christian reunion. And this document uh, is very important 
in bringing about that. What has happened since Vatican II, as, as many people are aware, at least vaguely, the church has really changed completely her approach to other Christian believers not in communion with the Catholic Church. Before Vatican II, the church's policy actually for several centuries had been simply to wait for the return, as it was called, of these, uh, as, as they were seen, separated brethren to the true fold of Christ. But there was only one problem in that, nobody was returning, or only a few were returning. John the 23rd, when he called the council, he had lived out in uh, Eastern Orthodox territory, thought this was a scandal, and one of the things the council did issue was this document, which took a new tack as to how the Catholic Church would look at those Christians outside her visible communion. And the tack was this. Instead of saying, oh, they're in error, they're, in, they, they're wrong about this, they're wrong about that. Instead of saying this, the council went to the idea that they are right about some things. Just about every Christian believer, for instance, has the sacrament of baptism. Some other communions, such, such as the, uh, uh, the Anglican Church, uh, perhaps, uh, or the Lutheran, have some of the um, sacraments. The Eastern Orthodox churches have all the seven sacraments, and only, the only problem with them is that they don't recognize the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. So the point of this document was to say, was to claim, and it's, it's ironic and interesting, that perhaps Vatican II's greatest claim of the traditional church teaching that the Catholic Church is the sole church of Christ, the true church of Christ, coming down in a direct line from the apostles, Vatican II's most significant statement on that subject comes in this document on ecumenism. So the church has not given away her claims to be what she is, what she's always claimed she is, but she is looking at those Christians outside her visible communion and saying, look, they're right on this, they're right on that, they're right on the other. Let's get together and talk about how we can uh, better, better, uh, if not achieve actual reunion, at least work together as Christians and not be at loggerheads or in conflict with one another. Now, it's actually worked very well since the Council. Some of the things that have come about in the field of ecumenism were unimaginable before the Council. Uh, we were in conflict with some of our fellow Christians, and Vatican II did uh, lay out in this document a few principles which uh, call for respect, for Christian believers, for um, elimination of uh, harsh criticisms, for work in common, uh, uh, such as in Christian charity, where we can do it in common. And uh, certainly there was no uh, ability through all of this to share the sacraments at this point. But the Council's idea was that we would dialogue. We would get into dialogue with our fellow Christians and we, we would see what could be agreed upon. Now, it's amazing uh, what has been agreed upon. Now, there's no Christian reunion, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, there still has not been what, what was the Vatican II dream, but there have been many areas of agreement, and what has, I think, positively come out of all this is that Christians are talking to each other now, which before, as John XXIII saw, was a scandal. So this is the value of this um, 
of this document, one of the most important of the Vatican II documents. If you look at your Catholic almanac in the back, you will find a list of all the agreed statements, the um, uh, 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 statements issued by the Pope uh, and uh, in his uh, uh, <clears throat> dialogue with other Christian leaders. And what comes out of looking at that uh, confirmed list over the last 40 years is that far from uh, no longer participating, or uh, it used to be that the Catholic Church didn't participate in the ecumenical movement at all. At this point, the Catholic Church, because of its size and numbers, has virtually taken over the, um, the, um, the leadership of the, of the worldwide ecumenical movement. Now, several of the um, other documents of the church, which I will mention quickly, um, there is the uh, document on the bishops, Latin title Christus Domino. There's a, uh, there's a document on the renewal of a religious life, uh, Perfecte Caritatis, the perfection of charity. Uh, there are two documents on priests and the training of priests. Uh, and there's a document on the laity, the first time in the history of the Catholic Church that the church has ever said anything about the laity. Um, all of these documents are um, derived basically from Lumen Gentium, the document on the church, and they are what I said earlier was an uh, ad intra or internal documents that regulate and change uh, the life of the church herself. All these documents have not been a complete success. I think it's well known that the, there hasn't been a great uh, uh, flourishing of the religious life. Some of that's coming back now. Some of these documents, in other words, still remain to be implemented, but all of them, I think, are sound. If you read them, you'll find that the doctrine that they set forth, uh, the, the ideas they set forth, uh, are definitely uh, a part of the 16 documents that the uh, Council issued. Now, there are two other documents that are of uh, uh, great importance. One is the Declaration on the Relations of the, uh, uh, of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. This was a very um, controversial and divisive doctrine at the time that it was being debated because it started out um, as part of the document on ecumenism and it was mostly concerned with the Jewish question. Following upon the Second World War, most of the fathers, most of the bishops who attended Vatican Council II very much had on their minds the terrible tragedy of um, uh, Hitler and the Holocaust against the Jews where he literally attempted to uh, destroy the Jewish people and uh, uh, did indeed uh, send to extermination camps uh, uh, millions of people. The council fathers at Vatican II had in their minds the church must make a separate uh, uh, must make clear that anti-Semitism um, feelings or, or um, animus or, or um, hard feelings against the Jews cannot be part of Christian doctrine. Now, this is, this is pretty straightforward as far as it goes, but the problem was the Christian churches in the Arab and Muslim world who were afraid that if the council issued a statement in favor of the Jews that then this would lead to persecution to those uh, mostly Eastern 
Catholic communions that exist in the Arab and Muslim world. And so they opposed this. So this was very, very controversial. And the Jewish communities were on this. They wanted a statement which said that, um, uh, which made clear that uh, the church does not believe in the guilt of the Jewish people for the, the death of Christ. Uh, this whole controversy was resolved by issuing a statement on the church's relationship to all non-Christian religions, not just the Jews, but contained within that was a very definite statement that anti-Semitism is contrary to the mind of Christ, contrary to the teaching of the church, and cannot be countenanced by the church. The other major point in this document on non-Christian religions is simply that the statement that the church does not reject anything that's true in other um, uh, uh, religions. Um, the other very important uh, document was the document on the Constitution on sacred scripture called Dei Verbum, the Word of God. This is a very sophisticated document which taking into account the skepticism about um, sacred scripture that exists in our culture at large reaffirms the traditional belief of the Catholic Church that the Holy Bible, the sacred scriptures, are the word of God, the genuine word of God, and the council affirms that in a very good document. Um, another um, document which is of extreme importance is the document, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, this is on the subject of religious liberty. This document was put together partly because of the persecution of Christians by the communists behind the Iron Curtain. And this is a document that was pushed forward by, for instance, uh, uh, the young Pope John Paul II, who, was, um, uh, who, who, did, uh, who pushed this very heavily on this. And um, the other thing about this document, this is where the American Catholic bishops finally got into the council. First couple of years, they really weren't very um, uh, prominent at the council, but on this one, they got into this in a big way. And more than that, the basic draft of this document was prepared by a, an American theologian, Father John Courtney Murray of the Society of Jesus. Uh, it is one of the great American um, contributions to the council. Another do document along the same lines is the document, the decree on the church's missionary act activity, which has the Latin title Ad Gentes. And this is another document of great interest because the basic draft of this document was prepared by the same Dominican theologian I mentioned earlier, Father Yves Congar. And um, Father Congar uh, did the, the first basic draft on this. Um, but um, one of the interesting things about this particular document is that it was reworked and the final draft was um, also the work of a young, another young German theologian. These, there were many theologians at the council. They were called Periti. Uh, Congar was only one. I could mention others. Uh, we saw John Courtney Murray on the religious liberty. The other young theologian who worked on the uh, document on lay missionary uh, on missionary activity of the church was named Joseph Ratzinger, Father Joseph Ratzinger, the future 
Pope Benedict XVI. Young as he was, he was already a peritus, as they said at the council, and he had a, a major part, for instance, in drafting uh, this particular document. It's one of the, the, the first part of this document on missionary activity is in itself a complete statement of the church's belief in the history of salvation, as we can call it. It's something all Catholics should read. Finally, um, I've gone through not very, um, in very much detail on some of these documents, but the last and longest document that I'll mention is the document called Gaudium et Space, Joy and Hope. This is by many people considered to be the greatest document of the council. It was um, a kind of an experiment. There never was such a thing as a pastoral council, as this one is called, uh, among the documents of the church. But the, but the bishops at the council wanted, first of all, to lay out the church's views on a lot of the questions that, that are concerned with the modern world. As I said before, these documents are divided up between uh, internal and external documents. This is the external one. And they made this in two parts. One part where they laid out the teaching of the church and another part where they attempted to apply the teaching of the church to some of the major problems of today, uh, of the day. And um, uh, this document contains many things, some of them really beautiful. Uh, John Paul II had a very heavy, large hand in, um, in putting this document together. He was part of the commission that produced it. And throughout his long pontificate, John Paul quoted this document perhaps more than any other, particularly on the subject of human dignity, which is a major uh, theme of the council. You'll find that in a number of the other documents, but it's really brought out here in great detail. And John Paul II never tired of quoting uh, Gaudium et Spes. Uh, some of the attitudes, or some of the message of the second part of the document where the bishops tried to apply the teaching perhaps seem a little dated today, but it does not invalidate the document. The document has many things in it. And once again, illustrates what I've been saying, that these documents really contain the legacy of the council. Uh, if you want to know what the Catholic Church is all about, you cannot do better than to go through these documents produced not perhaps in the lifetime of many of us today, but in the lifetime of some of us, and certainly uh, in, in the uh, previous century in what uh, Charles de Gaulle said was the greatest event of the 20th century, namely the Second Vatican Council. So I commend to all of you the task of looking at these 16 documents of Vatican II, reading at least some of them, studying them where you can, and trying to absorb and assimilate the message that, of course, is the 20th and 21st century version of the message of Jesus Christ to mankind, because the church is the extension of Christ in history and carries on the word and the work of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.